0: Hello and welcome to Pixel Sift. If this is your first time listening to the show, welcome. Here on Pixel Sift, we speak to creative minds behind video games and interactive media and learn more about their stories. What does it take to make an experience that you love? My name is Fiona, and joining me tonight is my co-host Viv. Thanks for joining me.
1: Hi, thanks for having me.
0: Now this is episode 173 and joining us to share their game is design manager Rick Stem and production artist Robin Wilson-Davey from Pickpock. Hey, thanks for joining us, guys.
2: Super excited. This stuff is great. Love what you guys do. Thanks for the support.
1: We can't wait to find out more about your game and what you've learned along the way um, to make it. So let's jump in. Hey there. If you're enjoying the show and you want to hear more, subscribe
0: to Pixel Sift on Apple Podcasts, Pocket Casts, Spotify, or listen on
1: pixelsift.com.au. See you there. Agent Intercept is a third-person driving game where you play as an agent using a slick, souped-up, transforming vehicle to stop a criminal organization. So for those learning about Agent Intercept for the first time, could you describe it to us?
2: Yeah. Agent Intercept is every car chase ever it is the feeling of being a super spy it is all the best moments of action from action movies and car chase movies and espionage movies like distilled into innocence uh with you in charge and you in the driver's seat
0: so what inspired you to, to to make the game like like you said it encompasses so much what first made you go let's let's make a mobile game for this
2: yeah, that comes actually before both of our time. I came mm. in at the very beginning of the project, but not before the early prototyping of. Uh, and that came from the opportunity from uh, Apple Arcade, where they wanted to work with us, and we gave them a number of pitches, including a pitch that was inspired by Spy Hunter. Um, and and that idea, or as our uh, chief design officer, Andy Satherthwaite, said, not... Um, Spy Hunter, but your memory of what Spy Hunter felt like. Uh, so that is, again, the essence of these awesome action driving games. Uh, and that was the pitch that they really liked. So it got developed. There was a quick prototyping period just to see, does this game work? Can we get some content for Apple Arcade? Uh, and then once we got it out and it felt good and Apple liked it, we realized there was just so much more we could do with the game and thus built out more missions and more modes and the story campaign and uh, continued improvements and the team expanded until we have what we think is a pretty nice uh, premium game right now.
1: Just to clarify, you built this game for Apple Arcade. It wasn't a game that was in development and then um, pitched to Apple.
2: Correct. Yeah. Apple came to us for the opportunity. We gave them several pitches. This is one they like. And so it was developed in conjunction with them um, where the Apple Arcade model is they help fund the beginning of the game. Um, and then there's some kind of contractual agreement of uh, profits thereafter. Um, and yeah, so so they had the opportunity, but we pretty quickly like latched onto it because the vision of the game was so clear. Like It was this outside opportunity where Apple's like, we want to work with you and we pitch this game, but it didn't take long for us to go like, oh yeah, this action game is great. Like we all understood the feel of what a super spy was like and we really thought there was so much we could do with that.
0: And in speaking of vision, one thing that really caught my attention was the art style of the game. It's super bright and vibrant. Robin, could you tell us a little bit more about this?
3: Um, Yeah, so it kind of leans very heavily into um, these sort of drawings um, from the 60s and 70s and kind of old like spy movie posters, like old James Bond stuff. Um, I think a lot of those images um, have a lot of kind of fun um, and kind of like this kind of cool, slick lifestyle kind of feeling to them. So we just wanted to lean into that and kind of give the game a really nice kind of retro-ish but kind of sleek, um,
2: stylized feel. I like that you said lifestyle because, like, our game is not about doing any kind of espionage. It's about that feeling, the lifestyle of being, you know, un- an unflappable, super stylish spy.
0: One of the things that... um comes with spies are like, obviously the really cool cars, the gadgets, how important was it to try and incorporate all those things that you kind of associate with spy movies into a singular car? I do know it transforms, which is pretty cool.
2: Yeah, that was the unique selling point of the game, the transforming spy vehicle. And that was actually one of my guiding principles for the narrative was because I'm a design manager at Pickpock, but I was narrative designer on this game. Um, And so... So yes, I wrote all the dialogue and I wrote the overarching spy story and, you know, the ideas behind the missions. But part of it is that moment-to-moment gameplay of going, okay, if we want you to feel like you're in control and this awesome transforming spy vehicle matters we have to put challenges that only this spy vehicle can solve in front of it. So that was thing going like only the scepter can solve this situation. And there are multiple times where we even like directly say that to the player being like, agent, this is a job that only you can handle. So we want the player to feel like only they can do it because they're the only agent capable of piloting the scepter transforming vehicle and only the scepter can get through these larger than life death defying situations. Uh, And so it gave us this excuse to put together these ridiculous set pieces that go across different types of terrain and something that impossible literally impossible to do in normal vehicles um, but again always centers the players they feel like they're in charge only they can do it because they're the best super spy and like that was a, a guiding thing to always make you feel like you're the one saving the day only you because of this awesome vehicle
3: and plus transforming stuff always looks cool so. yeah. <laughs> You definitely see a lot of cool um, reactions when people see it transform for the first time.
2: Yeah. Oh, yeah, that's been some of the best part of the streams <laughs> yeah. is those first transforms when we see the streamers' reactions. That um, carried through to the overarching narrative, too. I don't want to give any spoilers, but I thought, like, what's the cool... The Again, the unique selling point is this transforming spy car, so I knew that that transformation aspect needed to be, like, seeded into the overall narrative, too, because it was so cool. So you'll have to play the game to see how it actually pans out in the story, but that was such a, like forefront of the vision so the good part about that is we can author these incredible larger than life cinematic set pieces which maybe you can talk about a little bit in a sec Um, but it means that yeah you're not controlling when you can transform it so we had to make it feel earned and feel part of the narrative so part of that was storytelling right so we'd have a situation where like you're chasing a helicopter but then it shoots a missile at the city but you have no way to get to the city so you transform into a boat and you're able to save the day by taking that shortcut or you know Um, A villain comes out of nowhere and knocks you off road, but you transform into off road mode so you're able to stay on and do that. So we tried to make all the story beats support that transforming so it didn't feel like you were just randomly running around. But again, it felt like you were deliberately because you're a slick super spy doing it at the right time to solve the problems. Um, Our level designers were also really excellent at understanding the fun of each Vehicle and making the moment-to-moment gameplay great. So going okay, you're going to transform into a boat that handles differently What can we do with that? You're transforming into the sled mode and that has really wide handling and can get big air So let's put a lot of jumps in you know The car is tighter control so you are going to have more enemy fighting. So our level designers were great at, at going. Okay, you're in this mode What's fun about this mode? Let's build the gameplay around that.
3: I think there was a lot of creativity as well because um, Like we could only fit in so many modes and I think we were like, oh, well you know, what What else can we do with that type of vehicle? Like, for example, the sled mode, which you think first is, like, just for Arctic stuff. And they're like, well, maybe that would work if you were in, like, really loose sand. And so that kind of um, opened up a much broader kind of range of environments. And it's kind of same with the um, jet mode. Like, yeah, you can fly in the sky, but maybe where else can you fly a jet? And just kind of, yeah, yeah we found... Um,
2: Underground in tunnels yeah. <laughs> to the center of the Earth, for example. Yeah. <laughs>
1: Well, were there like many vehicles that you had to cut out during the game design process to, um, because of just how, like of how many that you could put in there?
2: No, it was the opposite, really. We started with a tight set of just car and boat and off-road and left it at there. And then as the game expanded and we felt good about it and felt that there was something there, we added on the sled mode, which then added to, we added on the yeah, aerial mode. So it was actually, we were smart about scoping uh, small and then expanding from there.
0: So with the the art side, what were some of the challenges when creating the look for the game, especially when it's so fast paced for the player?
3: It's tricky because, especially initially, we were quite on um, mobile. You know, you have a lot of restrictions about what you can fit in, um, and kind of creating things that feel like you're getting a good sense of speed when everything is kind of quite flat. Um, so I think a lot of the the stylization that we kind of leaned into, I think, helps with a lot of that. Um, the like the um, kind of you have areas of quite um, kind of flat color, but they they flash past a lot in altern in kind of alternation, um, and then as we brought the game um, onto Steam, uh, obviously that opened things up a lot more, and we were ab- able to add um, lots of kind of cool like motion um, blurring effects um, that kind of yeah helped to sell that sense of speed even more.
2: One thing that helped us too is uh, to greater and lesser extent, Rob and I both have film backgrounds. So I would definitely be able to write the cutscenes that I had in mind with a filmic language, not that these specific shots were needed, but so that you could understand the emotion and go, okay, here's your intent with the movement. Here's your intent with the story flow. Here's your intent with the emotion. Now I can bring that to life in my way. So it was easy for us to communicate and easy for me to go, here's what we need, but you do you and use your skills to make it as good as possible. And and, uh, yeah, that I think really helped with all that too.
0: And now we read that uh, part of the game was partially inspired by the PS2 game Spy Hunter. What were the challenges of trying to make the game original while still being a bit reminiscent of the PS2 game?
2: Yeah, so it's not a, a set remake of Spy Hunter. That was just a source of inspiration. So I think it helped. Again, I think I said this earlier, our chief design officer who was early lead designer of the game said it's not... Spy Hunter. It's your memory of what Spy Hunter was. Because Spy Hunter, by the way, second game I ever played in my life. It was the second game we got for Nintendo when I owned when I was a kid, and the second video game I ever played. So I have strong memories of Spy Hunter, but it's not a great game. Uh, It's very repetitive, and it's really hard. (laughs) I don't remember that. What I remember is zooming forward and firing machine guns. I remember you know having my mind blown when you turned into a boat i remember the good feeling of the helicopter chasing you and you getting the missile and taking down the helicopter like those moments of yeah feeling in control and fast and power and these cool gadgets going through and so it was that again it was about the lifestyle the feeling like how do we make you feel like a super spy how do we make you feel graceful while doing the impossible um and carry that forward so and again that vision was pretty clear um, and that gave us a lot of freedom. Because it was this great, like, again, we knew what the feel was, but we had so much freedom to get that feeling across.
3: Yeah, I think one of the, one of the um, things we came back to a lot is that um, it's kind of supposed to be everyone is supposed to feel like a super spy who plays. Um, only a few people are supposed to feel like like the elite sort of thing. So I think there was a lot of kind of back and forth with um, balancing to make sure that things weren't too hard so that the, whatever you're doing, you always felt, like super slick and awesome, but there were still some kind of um, kind of trickier, extra things that you can reach for if you're a better player.
2: Yeah, that's why we added the Intel objectives and all these different high score modes and time trials and score chase and global leaderboards. So again, if you just want it for the story, you just jump into the driver's seat and are totally immersed. But there's ways for you to go back, get those objectives or go back and unlock the leaderboard and then place first in that leaderboard and learn more about our combo system to really maximize your points and how to chain together combos and how to do all the stunt bonuses. And which is also a great thing that uh, I was thinking about the other day. I feel like one good thing we did was uh, marry like the the action movie tropes to the gameplay. So, for example, again, I'm not spoiling because this is in the first level. In an action movie, a plane or helicopter like running at you and shooting bullets and the action hero like running between the strafing bullets is an action movie trope. And that's something we do in the game, but you also get a point bonus for doing it and can keep your combo alive for doing it. So something you want to do because it's an action movie thing, but we're also mechanically rewarding that thing. Um, And so it just goes hand in hand
0: now the game did release back in 2019 on Apple Arcade, but not that long ago, uh, it did release on Steam. What were some of the challenges of adapting a mobile game to a Steam PC platform?
2: That was mostly you, my man. I mostly (laughs) got to sit back and go, it looks amazing, great job.
3: Yeah, I think um, the main thing that we were aware of of is making it feel uh, like it deserved to be on that kind of bigger platform. Um, So we spent a lot of time um, yeah, kind of adding various improvements and tweaks to the graphics, uh, making things just look a lot prettier. Um, and then also, um, yeah, there's like a lot more content that we spent time making, um, more, more game modes, um, like the score, score attack, um, kind of rounding up the main story missions with a whole bunch of extra side missions, um, which are still, some of which are still in development.
2: Yeah. um, You can look forward to a bunch of, some of my favorite ones too. Some of the ones that haven't released yet are some of my favorite of the side missions.
3: So yeah. So yeah, mostly just like making everything um, bigger and more and then also making it still fit on like, yeah, making them both feel <laughs> the same. <laughs> right, because everything's got to come back
2: to Apple yeah. and will come back. So there's everything on the Steam version will be on the Apple Arcade version. And yeah, that's hard with all the graphical improvements you guys did, making sure they ran. And uh, the UI looks really great, like excellent work on, on that. Mm.
0: So what was the, the reception like uh, when people found out it was being brought to Steam and had all these new added levels and bits and bobs? Uh,
2: the best thing for me... Is the reactions on the streamers' faces. Um, that's where I could see because we didn't have like a huge marketing blitz pre Steam. So certainly we were excited internally, and we did have some people commenting on Apple Arcade going, Oh, this game is cool. I wish I could play it, you know, outside of Apple Arcade. Um, so we got that a lot, which is great. But yeah, to me, that moment of like when it drops and people, when they see that first transformation moment, you know, when they see these impossible, when we create. A completely impossible obstacle, and they're like, no, they'll never do that. And then you do it, and everyone's like, what the? Heck? We have to, we can't share their reactions because there are so many, like, just genuinely just like swearing as they're like, what the hell was that? Um, so it's been great, like, seeing that our vision, again, of this, of this crazy, stylish, high-energy, world-saving, like, over-the-top world is, like, coming through to people, and we're getting those, like, raw emotions coming across. And I think being able to play it on a bigger screen, having the graphical Im- improvements, having the voiceover to tell the story, um, yeah, just creates that immersion that allows those feelings to come across.
3: Yeah, I think there are quite a few comments, like, um, you know, I wish this was on Steam or, like, on any other platform, um, so it's nice to be able to kind of deliver that to those people, I guess.
2: <laughs> yeah, because I feel like it's a good mobile game. Like the, the yeah. controls are simple and you can play it in bite-sized chunks. So it actually really works as a mobile game. But again, because it's so cinematic, uh, which is mainly our, our job there, like it plays really great on the big screen, too.
0: Now, you both mentioned before that you have a bit of more of a background in screen production. How did you first get your start in video game developing?
2: Take it, Raman. I have I have a long convoluted story.
3: Yeah. All right. Uh, so this is actually my first um, this is my first time working in video games. Yeah. I, I come from um, kind of an animation um, film and TV background um, where I've kind of um, specialized in kind of putting sequences together. So I think I'm um, I'm hoping what happened is that they looked at my resume and were like, oh yeah, this is the guy that we should bring in to make um, these big crazy cutscenes that. Um, that Rick was writing. Yeah. Um, I so. love working with you, man. You
2: are, yeah. I, it'd be hard for me to picture working with someone that didn't have your background to do that. Brag a little. you worked on some cool stuff.
3: Yeah, I worked on things like um, Lego Batman and Lego Ninjago um, and the um, Thunderbirds I Go TV series. Ugh. So, yeah, lots of stuff with um, explosion vehicles swooping around. So, yeah, I think it was um, just right time, right place um, for me, I think.
2: Yeah. Yeah. And I'm a big advocate of that. And I think Stu, our our um, chief uh, our artistic uh, director is as well. And people with varied backgrounds do bring new skills to the games industry. And so, yeah, good fit. And then, yeah, I have a very varied background. I have a degree in film, but never actually worked in it. Uh, I worked in instructional design for a long time, um, creating e-learning for what is now the world's largest medical records provider so like millions of people look at the e-learnings i made and so that taught me a lot about design and ux and, and interactivity i'm also a playwright um i've actually been a playwright longer than i've been a game designer so i've had a lot of shows produced and one of my specialties is interactive theater so i've done a lot of transmedia stuff and theater that the audience interacts with and theater that incorporates tech so that was natural um though i have also worked in educational games um i was an indie game designer for many years and and made my own games while also working as a, a working artist uh, in teaching game design at an art school so i have like instructional design video game design teaching film theater weird transmedia art uh, I'm also a kung fu instructor and a fight choreographer, so like I just think about movement and action a lot. Which I think one of the reasons we get together because uh, we know how to like tell stories through movement and action, and uh, yeah, all that mixes together and uh, makes me a good good game designer. Hopefully,
1: that's quite the repertoire. <laughs> what made you interested in that? Um, I guess in the field of stuff.
2: Yeah, it, to me, it was video games were cool not just because I love playing them, but for me, there's something magical about them being interactive. They're really I mean, I can go on to a whole screen about how all art is interactive. Um, But really, more than anything, video games really only exist with a player. And you have to think about your audience. Uh, And there's something magical about letting people create their own stories. Um, So like I did a lot of role-playing games. I still play D&D and love GMing because I love creating experiences that people feel are their own and they own. And video games just do that better than anything else. So that was, yeah, that was me. There's the magic to the interactive art form.
3: Yeah, I don't know. It's it's always been like an area of interest for me, um, and I think there's a lot of opportunities for kind of um, exploring the cinematic side of games in a in, I don't know in a way that's like more interesting than just seeing cutscenes and kind of um, exploring how the player can be involved in that sort of stuff. So, yeah, I I, wanted, I, I saw an opening to kind of get involved and was like, oh yes, awesome.
2: <laughs> yeah. I think that really helps this game. So, we've got the cinematic background, we've got the theatrical background, and then we both have video games, and like all of that is evidenced in this game, I think. That's that's our trifecta, but we have amazing tech people building, you know, incredible tools for the team to use and making it feel good. Great UX and UI. So everything comes across like obviously amazing production artists. The level designers are fantastic. Even just the support, you know, QA people playing the game all the time to make sure it feels good. Um, Yeah, we had a a really fantastic team. You're right. We need to give them all credit. We're here representing them. We have a (laughs) lot of amazing. They all have cool, diverse backgrounds. Yeah.
0: So, so what is the industry scene like in New Zealand? Like you were saying, you've got such an amazing big team all working together and providing so many new and like individual experiences.
2: Yeah, it's, uh, it's growing in a way that I really like because um, San Antonio, Texas, which is where I was from, I'm from Wisconsin. If there's anyone watching who knows where that is. Um, But San Antonio was similar in that there wasn't a big indie. Austin had a big scene. San Antonio didn't. And so I got on the ground floor of that. And I was helping to like found an IGDA chapter and like get a group of gamers together and connect other indies and get booth set packs so we could connect with others and like grow the scene. And New Zealand's a little farther than that. But it has some of that same energy of going like, hey, actually, we're not alone. There is a scene here. There's other studios. There's internationally known studios with popular games with millions of players. Um, But there's still room for us to connect and support each other. There's still room for the government to like understand what we do and put money into it. Uh, So it's at this cool place where I think it's recognized and it has a a reputation. Like three of the 60 launch games are, from new zealand or new zealand uh, australia in apple arcade so like a way higher percentage than you would expect um having like multiple launch games of the 60 launch titles from new zealand so it is an internationally known industry but there's still room to grow and i think that's a good thing again it, it makes us support each other and, and it makes us get out in the community and try and support universities so we can get more talent in try and talk to the government so they understand what we're doing trying to get investors involved trying to get people to move here so it still has that energy of like yeah let's grow we can do this um, sorry, I rambled a lot. I don't know if you have any thoughts, too, like what, uh, you know, from your more outside perspective.
3: Yeah, I don't know. I think it still feels, I think the things have come a long way, but it does still feel small enough that it's kind of a bit of a community vibe um, with lots of kind of, yeah, kind of small scale things going on. I know you've been involved with like some of the talks, like for um, developing narrative for games and stuff like that. yeah. And-
2: I like that yeah. aspect, right? There's, um, you know, I've talked at multiple universities and it's great to do that. We've got um, NZGDC coming up. We'll all be giving a talk there. We have these other groups like Welling Taru and Game Developers of Wellington and Kiwi Jam. Um, and again, you will see people like, you know, success stories, people from Dinosaur Polo Club or Grinding who makes Path of Exiles. Like they'll show up at these local events and support people, and it's really great. Um, while also having some up and coming indies.
1: I wanted to ask more about, like, the artistic approach when making um, or when creating anything in general, not just video games. Um, Robin, what are, I guess your first steps when you um, when approaching a certain idea, do you like know where to begin, or do you like take heavily from, um, I guess, a concept that someone gives you? Like, t- talk us through that.
3: Yeah, I'd say definitely. Um, here on Agent Intercept um, at Pickpok, we have an awesome art direction team. Um, so, so, um, there's, I think they, they, along with the, um, concept art team do a lot of the heavy lifting when it comes to, um, defining the visual style. Um, and then kind of once you're kind of in the weave of making, making props and vehicles and, um, whatever, I think there's a little bit more back and forth. Um, but usually it's, you know, like you, you look for references that feel appropriate and, uh, maybe you have a crazy idea that, um, you know, fits whatever whatever crazy thing you're doing at the time. Um, but, yeah, and then just, yeah, a lot of conversations between a lot of really talented people, I'd say.
1: <laughs> and is the process between creating game art and animated film, for example?
3: Not too different. Um, I couldn't speak to it very, like, like very kind of intelligently because um, where I was working before was, like, quite... Like in the, I don't know how much you know about like layout, but that's kind of like where everything is still kind of like gray and gray boxes, and you're kind of just moving like very very early versions of things around in space. Um, But I'd say that generally, I'd say, yeah, you have a concept team who come up with things. Um, Some projects I've worked on, um, like directors or people who have been working on things are kind of involved in generating ideas, which I think is probably similar to how um, the team works here on Agent Intercept. And then you kind of, you know, you're like, yeah, we have this crazy idea and then the art department are like, cool, we'll come up with a bunch of cool stuff. What do you think? And we're like, oh, yeah, that looks great. And, yeah, kind of everything just kind of builds on top of each other.
0: And now, Rick, you were saying before that you have uh, are a playwright, you've written for a whole bunch of different theatre productions. What are the differences between writing for something on stage as opposed to writing for a visual media uh such as games and anything online
2: yeah there's uh there's probably there's a lot of differences might be easier to talk about the similarities but obviously scope is one right on a stage you're you're limited to what you can actually build and do in real time and in a game you can go in you know into space or travel through time you know with relative ease um though I think that's actually one of the things that makes me good over the top game narrative designer is that one of the things I love about theater is that imagination of going, okay, we do have this limited space, but can I still transport you to somewhere else? Like I have a video game show and we have, um, these giant monster battles that are all done with stage hands, doing little monster puppets and moving little magic effects around, you know, dressed in black and just going like, can I evoke that same feeling within these limited constraints? And so that gives you a lot of big imagination. Um, Obviously, theater is is more focused on the actors. Of course, that made me, I think, hopefully helps me write, you know, good dialogue and work with voice actors. But uh, the game, the player is the main actor in the game. So you really need to center them. Whereas in theater, you might have an ensemble and each of the different characters are equally important. Um, So you definitely have to think differently to center the player that way. Um, The thing that I like about both of them um, is that they're collaborative. In both aspects, I the only way to put on a theater show is to work with actors and director and dramaturge and set designers and costume designers and lighting people and sound people, um, et cetera, et cetera. And same thing with video games. You can only make a game with tech and programming and UI and various aspects of art and QA and you know, various types of designers, but that is always going to make it better because there's always going to be like, I have a kernel of a story and I believe in this story, but how that story comes to life is mostly in everybody else's hands. And they're going to bring things to the table that I would have never thought of that just makes it better. And so I think like the best thing I've learned um, as a writer in both media is to go, if I can excite people about the idea, um, either like literally through an action movie or just a vision that's clear and gets people hooked into you, then they're going to bring their all to it. And then, they're going to make it better than I ever could.
1: So what would be the most challenging aspect of game development for uh, to the both of you?
2: Yes. <laughs> for me, it's scope, <laughs> which is classic, because I just I just want to do things big and crazy, and and I want to tell stories, and I want everybody to have a chance to do their best. And so I'm, I'm getting better at it. <laughs> I get better every year, but uh, it's an age-old issue that, uh, yeah, it's, it's hard to... Uh, constrain it, which is often better. I think it's a it's better in the end when you constrain it. But I but I think it's okay to start big if you know how to, to bring it in. So I've gotten better at still starting as big as possible, but knowing that we start as big as possible get people excited about the possibilities. Um but we're actually going to scope it in it's going to be better and, and tight for that. So yeah, just uh forcing myself to to scale it down.
3: <laughs> uh yeah I'd say it's probably a similar thing for me. Um not I think for me I have to remember not to say yes to everything. Um yeah I think there's a lot of people, um, like, yeah, you know, a lot of the team have lots of really good ideas all the time, um, and as a production artist, you know, when someone's like, oh, yeah, do you think we can just, like, add this thing in here, you know, and will that be that, you know, and you're kind of like, yeah, that sounds great, and then maybe afterwards you're like, oh, wait, it actually sounds like a lot of work, <laughs> <laughs> um, and so, you yeah, know, just kind of um, balancing those things out, I think, um, is, is another thing I'm kind of learning to do as well
2: (laughs) yeah because we just put you and i in a room like we spitball all day and come up with (laughs) the greatest cutscenes ever at that and the game would never get released
0: yeah yeah it sounds like when you two are together there's lots of ideas flowing and lots of things that you both want to achieve with not only this game but others too
2: yeah, and I think that's one of the things that made Agent Intercept good is we, like whenever I was pitching a, a new chapter, like the overall story, I'd get the entire team into the room and go, here's what I'm thinking, and then just let people flow with ideas. Usually it would just be building up, what about with this, what about this, but it would also be useful for tech going like, oh, I think that's going to be too hard, or art going, oh, we've been working on this cool asset, can you work that in? So there was always these moment of the whole team coming together, and then likewise, when we embarked on a level, there would be these early cutscene meetings where we'd have representatives from tech and design and production art, as well as us uh, getting people in a room to talk about again both the what's possible what are good ideas but also where are the constraints where where do we get the most bang for the buck what's there so um yeah but but having everybody in a room just beating off of each other um is really great um and yeah we have a lot of good moments that uh, design moments you know story moments that came from level designers or um you know in really cool visual moments that came from tech people so it's fully collaborative effort
3: yeah i think it's really nice although i think people were keeping um kind of technical constraints in mind, I think generally when it came to like the the quality of ideas, I don't think anyone ever said, oh, is that too crazy? <laughs> like, it was always like, um, oh, no, that's, that's fine. Or, you know, that's not crazy enough. Yeah, you know, we can push it further. Yeah,
2: yeah, it was more, how can we do that? Yeah. <laughs> yeah.
0: Now, for those just starting in the game, uh, the game developing industry, what advice would you give to people who aren't sure where to begin or what to do?
2: Well there's the classic uh, it's cliché so I'll make sure to say something else as well but just make games you know just whatever it is you know use simple systems if if you're using game maker that's that's great if you're making board games with you know pieces you find you know in a in a craft cabinet that's great like just do whatever you can to make stuff um participating in game jams and getting hands on is great um so everyone says it but it's true um the other thing i'd say this is this is the opposite end of that but i'm a big believer in this and i think we touched on it with our backgrounds but like Live an interesting life. Um, you can't just be like super hardcore in on one skill set. I mean, you need a minimum level of skills. And if you're going to apply to be a production artist, they're going to ask for certain um, proficiencies with softwares and a portfolio of things. So I don't want to downplay that. But also like. Where the fun comes from, where the collaboration comes from, where the connection to your audience comes from, is that you you get out there and you live an interesting life and you meet interesting people and you do cool things and you draw on all that stuff. And that helps you get cool ideas out there and it helps you know how to work with people and it helps you know how to understand your audience and it helps you have different perspectives of people who might be playing your game. So I think while yes, there is certainly a barrier of hard skills you need to overcome, I think like you gotta get out and do weird stuff Um, and that makes you a better artist.
0: Well, that's all the time we have for for this episode tonight. You can pick up Agent Intercept now on Apple Arcade and Steam. Thanks so much for joining us on the show, Rick and Robin. It was great having you guys on board and finding out more.
3: Thank you. Awesome. Thanks for having us.
0: Pixel Sift is produced by Sarah Island, Daniel Ang, Adam Christo, and myself. Mitchell Lowe is our senior producer, and Gianni Di Giovanni is our executive producer. As always, we'll be putting links to everything we talked about in the show notes on our website, pixelsift.com.au.
1: You can also join us on Discord. We'd love to have you there. That's pixelsift.com.au forward slash Discord, where you can share your creative work, talk about any topics you want games and anything else really so that's pixelsift.com.au forward slash discord if you like what we do can we ask a favor we need your help to share the show Uh, so tell a friend subscribe um yourself and your brothers and sisters maybe uh start someone's journey into podcast because we know that getting started is tricky but once you're in you'll love it too much to leave
0: Next week on the 1st of July, we'll be back with Pixel Sif Plays, playing one of the many indie games featured on the show. That's all for this week. Thanks for joining us and we'll catch you next time.